Today is the feast of St. Matthias. The remaining 11 apostles were gathered in the upper room after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord. And Simon Peter, their leader appointed by Christ, called them to an important task, the replacement in the vacant office of apostle of Judas. Of the two qualified men nominated, the Holy Spirit led them to choose St. Matthias. But the main reason for this act of choosing him to replace Judas was, as stated in the book of Acts, that one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Thus, the primary importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is what we'll discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, joined as usual with Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, we're, uh, it just, it's, we're very pleased to join you today in uh, taking this time to look at the Word of God. And as I mentioned in the opening, we're going to talk about the necessity of the resurrection, believing in the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection. Uh, is it merely a spiritual resurrection? Was it symbolic or was it true and real? And why is it important that it was real? And I alluded to the fact today being the feast day of St. Matthias, that one of the key reasons that they recognize the need to replace the fallen apostle Judas was not just that they'd have a full 12, but this additional authoritative witness to the resurrection. Now, again, a reminder, if you'd like to connect with us on Deep in Scripture, you can go to deepinscripture.com. You can send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. And also, we'd love to have you subscribe to the CH Network Facebook page or Twitter at CH Network. Ken, once again, thank you for joining us all the way from Illinois. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. And uh, to continue our study through First uh, Corinthians, maybe uh, just in case someone hasn't uh, been able to join us in the past, maybe set the stage, Ken, for this section that we're going to look at today. Today we'll look at First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. And maybe Ken, set the, the contextual background for this. Well, we recall from our previous weeks and study of uh, verses 1 through 11 that uh, we are now in 1 Corinthians 15 in, a ch in this central chapter of the entire New Testament that deals with the reality and the importance of the resurrection. And it's so important that, as we'll see in the text today, Paul says if the resurrection didn't take place, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then uh, then our faith is in vain. But it's interesting, too, that it occurs in 1 Corinthians because if we study 1 Corinthians carefully and read it, we'll see there are all kinds of problems in the church of Corinth. And now he comes to, in a, in a sense, the last problem that he's dealing with, and that's the problem of the resurrection. Some have denied that there that there was a resurrection in Christ or that there will ever be a resurrection. Perhaps uh, some said, well, there's a spiritual resurrection that took place, those that had died. Um, and Paul tries to counter that. The importance of the resurrection for being a Christian, for being in the church, is very clear from the opening verses of of this chapter where he cites the witnesses that we talked about in the past few weeks. He talks about Cephas and and James and the, uh, and the other apostles. And he says that even 
Christ even appeared to over 500 people at once. In other words, the physical reality of Christ in the resurrection. And last week we had the opportunity to talk about the impact of the resurrection upon Paul's life. I think we've all had experiences in our lives, be they spiritual or otherwise, where um, something has had an enormous impact and it, it sort of never leaves us. Well, in a greater sense, a supernatural way, this is what happened to Paul. He was uh, confronted, uh, he was invited by Christ to become his apostle by seeing Christ in heaven. And so for Paul, it's as if the resurrection is vividly before his mind every day of his life. And so he labors, as he said in verse 10, he labors even more than all the apostles. Um, By the grace of God, he's able to preach Christ. And so we come to this text that we're looking at today, where Christ is preached as raised from the dead. Today's text, Marcus, um, is more, you might say, Paul is entering into the precise logic of the resurrection, why it's important. And if it's not important, well then, uh, as he says, our faith is in vain, we might as well give up being Christians. So that's the context in which we're talking about today. Well, let me read it in case one of our listeners doesn't have a, a Bible in front of them. Ken, and, and as I read this, um, you know, all we have before us, in fact, originally was the Greek from Paul's letter as it was then copied and translated. And now we have our different translations. So it's hard to hear what was the tenor of his voice when he wrote this down, mm-hmm. when he maybe dictated it to uh, his amanuensis. amanuensis. Um, but let me read it. And when I would try and paint a picture of of why he's using the language and why is he reiterating it so much in this paragraph. So let me read. Now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Yeah, Marcus, what strikes me about this this text, as I said, is this where Paul this is where Paul now uh, begins to uh, construct his logical argument, right? Uh, where he says that. Um, <clears throat> Okay, you say that there's no resurrection of the dead. Well, then it's obvious then, if that's true, that Christ has not been raised. And then what's the natural consequence of that? The natural consequence he draws is that your faith is in vain. You're still in your sins. And there's several important things about that. What strikes me most of all is that we seem to live in, in a day and age where people are unable to draw logical conclusions from things. In other words, if you have A, B, and C, does X, Y, and Z follow that? Well, if for, lo- for people who think logically, you know, it often does. But people seem to be yeah. unable to do that. Or they draw, they draw conclusions that don't follow from something. Paul here is, is using 
ironclad logic in saying if Christ is not raised from the dead, then uh, if if there is no resurrection, then obviously Christ is not raised from the dead. And what does that make us? What it makes us is not only that we are false, that we're preaching something wrong, we're actually we're actually becoming false witnesses yeah. against God because God testified that he did raise him from the dead. You, you know, as I was reading this, Ken, uh, and when you read it out loud, you read scripture out loud, it, you got more of your senses involved yeah. uh, than just your eyes. Um, and what it reminded me of is the image I've, always had of, of Martin Luther when he found himself in the debate with the reformers over the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, when, when Luther began his renewal, um, you know, even he admits he didn't anticipate that almost quickly there'd be so many other contradictory, uh, conflicting yeah. interpretations. He had opened a can of worms and within 10, 20 years, maybe 30 years, there I think there was a book published then of 200 ways of understanding the phrase, this is my body. And I remember that image of him slamming the table over and over again, this is my body in German, this is my body. Mm-hmm. Because he's got around him all these different people with different interpretations of, is it truly Christ? Is it the image of Christ? Is it merely a symbol? Is it whatever? And that's what this reminded me of, of Paul having to say the same thing over and over again in the midst of that. There's the logic, as you say there, but there's a couple of those phrases that really are the same verse said over and over again. It's because at um, not only, it seems to me, Ken, not only is the issue of the reality of the resurrection at question here, and not only is the issue of whether they believe it or not at question, but a question is Paul's authority in yeah, the context right. of this early church because of these rising alternative views already, as Paul says in Galatians, of other Gospels rising up to re-explain Jesus. Yeah, yeah, well, you're absolutely right, and I think that's reinforced by the context in which he begins by citing the the traditions that, that this is what was handed down. And remember back in verse 3 of this chapter, Paul says, I handed on to you what I first of all received. So in other words, there, there wasn't any New Testament written at this point. In fact, 1 Corinthians was probably written in the, 19, in the 50s of the first century and therefore one of the earliest of Paul's epistles. And he's just recounting what he has received from either directly from Christ in the revelation that he had on Damascus in Damascus or from the other apostles. But he gives this evidence. Well, first of all, he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And then he appeared to 500 brethren at once and appeared to James and then finally to me. So to question the resurrection is not just to dispute some minor point. It is to question the very tradition that has come down. So he's quite, so these people are questioning the church's tradition if they if they deny this. And what Paul, of course, is is leading up to is the fact that what does this mean? Well, it means that our whole movement, thinking now in terms of putting ourselves right there in Paul's time, this whole movement that's been alive now for about twenty years, um, 
is utterly false. It's utter, it ought to be abandoned. The unbelievers, the skeptics, the the uh, you know the the philosophers who call us crazy. They're right. If Christ is not raised, if this is not a supernatural faith, then it's not worth living. I think what, there, there's several points here that he makes that I think are really good. But in reinforcing what I just said, he says that our preaching is in vain. Yeah. Your faith is in vain. So we're we're absolutely we're involved in self delusion. And you know. I just think about that again in my life and watching in the modern world and particularly in academia where I've spent most of my life. Self-deception is very easy. <laughs> it's not It's not as difficult as people think that it is. People living comfortably in a worldview that doesn't match up with the facts. Yeah. And, that, and it's very hard. You know, I was reading something recently by um, Etienne Gilson, very famous Catholic philosopher of the early 20th century. Uh, here's his book, The Unity of Philosophical Experience. And in this book, he makes a, a very interesting statement. He says, the truth is not that hard to find. It's just hard to keep believing because we're morally, we're morally bankrupt. <laughs> what he says. In other words, truth can be found by the human mind, but to hold on to it, to keep it, is not so much an intellectual decision as it is a moral decision. Do I do I desire enough to live according to truth? Well, Paul's facing that problem here. These people are giving up faith in the central fact of the resurrection, which means that you're still in your sins. Because without, without the resurrection, there's no forgiveness of sins. You know, Ken, uh, we think of oxymorons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like jumbo shrimp, uh, <laughs> or uh, yeah. we could think of another ox. Things that just don't are, are just put yeah. together don't make sense. And I think one oxymoron that uh, raises its ugly head is the oxymoron of a humble atheist. Uh, <laughs> and and if you take the extremes of a truly sincere atheist on the one hand and on the other extreme a truly sincere believer all right Mm -hmm. it seems to me that what you find is that one thing that sets them apart besides one believing in god and one not believing in god or one believing in the resurrection one not believing in the resurrection of christ is that in either case their vices and virtues are flip-flopped because for a christian Mm -hmm. For an authentic, believing Christian, the greatest virtue um, is humility, whereas the greatest vice, the greatest weakness, is pride. On the other extreme, in the atheist world, they're flip-flopped, whereas the greatest strength, the greatest virtue, is pride, whereas the, the greatest weakness would be humility. There's no reason for it. And the reason I bring that out is mm-hmm. that between these two extremes are a continuum. And what you have are, are, are Christians that aren't really living their faith, living their belief, haven't really caught the core of their faith, then pretty soon their vices and virtues get flip-flopped in the yeah, process. Yeah. And it seems the reason I bring this up, but it seems to me this is one of the reasons 
that as your philosopher friend mentioned, that holding on to the truth is tough because those moral fibers in us resist it. Because it's not a part of our nature to want to let go of pride and move towards humility. And that's what the resurrection demands. Well, boy, that is so well said because it actually, Pope Benedict XVI says exactly that in his book, on Jesus, oh, this great one book. About, the yeah. one about the resurrection. Um, and let me just read a one little short thing. He's talking about people who deny the physical resurrection of Jesus. Now, these would be uh, theologians like Rudolf Bultmann, uh, earlier theologians like uh, Adolf Harnack. Um, who, have, who have greatly influenced a great oh, number yeah. of the th- of the New Testament scholars and theologians that many of our listeners may encounter, let's say a state college. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I mean, Bultmann said explicitly around the be- middle of the 20th century that we simply cannot believe in any form of miracles because that would be against a modern worldview. I mean, he was very explicit <laughs> about it, you know, as if the modern worldview is the standard by which you judge whether uh, the, the miracles of the New Testament are true. But one of the things that Benedict points out is that these people think they know what a resurrection is. Now, this that seems obvious that we should know one. But here's what he says. He says, anyone approaching the resurrection accounts in the New Testament in the belief that he knows what rising from the dead means will inevitably misunderstand those accounts and will then dismiss them as meaningless. And what he goes on to explain is that a resurrection is not the same as a resuscitated corpse. A resuscitated corpse is what happened to Lazarus in John chapter 11. He goes on to say, Rudolf Bultmann raised an objection against the resurrection, against resurrection faith, by arguing that even if Jesus had come back from the grave, we would have to say that a miraculous natural event such as the resuscitation of a dead man would not help us live um, in an existentially relevant way. Now, you see what Bultmann is saying. He's equating the resurrection with a resuscitation of a corpse, right? And what Benedict points out is that in the New Testament and in the entire entirety of Christianity up until about the 20th century, um, the resurrection was not understood as a resuscitation of a corpse. It was understood as the infusion of a, of a life that was completely different than any other life that anyone had ever known before because the the life of of heaven is the life of divinity it's the very life of god and that can never die so the resurrection of the body is the reinfusing of jesus body with that heavenly life but you see if you don't see that if you don't understand that then of course the resurrection doesn't make any sense yeah i i almost hate to bring this up because i know non-Catholic listeners are, are immediately going to glaze their eyes over because if you bring up the Shroud of Turin, uh, you know, what do you do with that thing? Uh, yeah. um, but, the, you know, without making a declaration on the, the veracity of the, the Shroud of Turin, we still have to admit that to this day no one's explained it. And, and That's true. no one has ever explained yeah. how that happened. But one explanation that I've heard is similar to, hey, we've got the resurrection appearance of our Lord when he enters into the upper room and walks right through a door. 
in his resurrected body. Well, how has that happened? Well, you know, Ken, you like science like I do. And uh, we, we both know that scientists say that the human body is mostly air and water. <laughs> yeah. And, he dodged all the atoms going into the room. Well, there's one physicist that I've I met and talked to, and he believes that this supernatural resurrected body involves a reshifting of the atoms. Now, he's going a bit far. But my yeah. point being that we're dealing with a different... We're dealing yeah, with a true. different body, a different being, a, a different yeah. thing than merely, even like today, we hear all kinds of accounts where somebody died on the hospital table, and then 30 seconds later, he rose again. He came back to the life, and people talk <laughs> about that as a resurrection. That ain't what we're talking about here. That's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this recent book that was done by this, uh, and movie that was made called Heaven is for Real, uh, where this little boy, uh, Colton is his name, his dad's a protestant pastor i think out in nebraska and um good it was a good story it was good it was good but you know the the boy apparently had was able to see himself on the operating table and see what his parents were doing and so forth let's assume that that's true but even that as as wonderful it may be if it is true uh does is not the same as a resurrection the resurrection is completely different it is an inner in it's an entry into another kind of existence and uh, the way that i've often explained it is that when people ask well where is heaven the bible naturally uses localized language right it, you, the, the language of going up or going down into something or going over something because we're creatures that live in a three-dimensional world but the resurrection comes from another dimension of existence it's that dimension of existence where god is if you can speak about God as being somewhere, he's in another dimension. And that dimension penetrates into our three-dimensional world in various ways. And I think that's the way that happened in Christ when divinity was joined to humanity. You had that extra dimension that was into this world, into this three-dimensional world in which we're living. The resurrected body of Christ is, in fact, that the the inner penetration of those of those things um you know it's it's interesting uh, when you talk about the proofs of the resurrection well we, when we learn in elementary logic or elementary uh, science that we shouldn't uh, theorize too much on the absence of evidence right that is to say there's a silence there's an argument from science we should avoid those but there's one glaring silence that's very difficult to explain, and that is no one's ever found the tomb of Jesus. I mean, that is, no one has ever found the body of right. Jesus. No one's ever found the bones. And people so, have tried. In the, yeah, oh, yes, they have. The absolutely. famous book that I remember is uh, Who Moved a Stone. I remember yeah. that book um, by, a, uh, I think, an Anglican, or a, but he was an atheist who uh, lawyer yeah, yeah, he, who sought to do that very thing. Uh, and yeah. and couldn't find it, uh, could not prove the reality of any uh, evidence of the body or, or bones yeah. or uh, of Christ. Um, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Ken, it seems to me, and you maybe want to do this a little bit after the break, but um, that in verses um, 17 and 18 and 19, we have a summary of if Christ has not been raised, 
right? Um, if he's not been raised, then the, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those who have died have perished. Hmm. You know, I mean, those three things are really a, uh, dealing with key aspects of our Christian faith. Um, yeah. You know, that we have been, we have been uh, freed from our sins and death. Those are the key things. And if they ain't true, then our faith is futile. And as it says in verse 9, then we of all men must be pitied. We of all yeah. men must be pitied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's this uh, passage, we'll, we'll come back to this after the break, but uh, particularly in verse 18, he says that those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That is, if if there is no if there is no resurrection, then if they they're gone, they're gone, they're lost to us completely. Part of the great hope of the Christian faith is that those who've died have are not lost to us, and that's why Scripture uses the Greek word koimao, which means to sleep. By the way, I don't know if you realize it, but the word cemetery comes. The Greek word for cemetery is koimeterion, and it means a place of being asleep. So this, those who are in the cemetery are asleep. They're not. They're not. They're not lost to us forever. They're part of our. They're part of our lives. You know, I recently read a book by a, a very well-known author um, in the sustainable farming, Mother Earth, um, the, the modern movement back to small farms and all that. I don't want to mention his name here or even yeah. his book because I don't really want to recommend it. But his book is about dealing with life and death as an old man. He he abandoned his Christian faith. And his view of, of life, the way to face death for him, is to recognize that all these religions trying to find another place that we're going to go to is a dead end. And all the scientists trying to say we're going to create a better world is a dead end. The only okay. way to face life is just understand that there is no beginning to any of this, and there is no end to any of this. And just like our farm animals and our plants, that when they die, they become fertilizer, and that's all that we are, and that's all that we'll be. And so there's no need to think about a bigger picture. You know, when we come back, Ken, I want to ask you to answer this man, to give him hope. You're listening to Deep in Scripture, Marcus Grodi, and... Dr. Kenneth Howe will be with you in just a moment. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings harken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you. 
next time on The Journey Home. Join Marcus as he welcomes former Anglican priest Father Eurgen Leas to the show. See how his studies led him home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody, joined uh, by Dr. Kenneth Howell. Before the break, Ken, uh, I'm not sure I did justice to the author's intent. He wrote a whole book on this idea, mainly um, a book I've got coming out soon called Life from Our Land. It deals almost exactly what he dealt with. What I, We both dealt with looking at nature and then coming up with analogies for life. And for me, looking at nature drew me to God. You know, I, I like yeah. like St. Bonaventure's Journey of the Mind to God. When you look at nature, you see the evidence of God. For this guy, looking at evidence convinced him that when we die, we just become fertilizer. And that's all that we have to mm-hmm. worry about, we always have to look for. Uh, there's no beginning, there's no end, there's no better place. This is it. And be happy. Um, you, you were in contact over the years far more than I with... Uh, some of these scientific materialist thinkers. Is that a common idea? It, well, it is among certain, as you said, scientific materialists, but not all scientists are materialists, and, uh, and certainly right. not the average person. Um, what I think needs, takes place in a person's life, happens in a person's life like that, is uh, probably something out of an emotional level that is uh, sort of turned off, you might say. The spic- the divine spigot is turned off, and they lose connection with anything greater than themselves or greater than the world that's around them. Um, when people don't believe in any transcendent reality, they try to do the best they can to make sense of the world that's around them, right? Especially if they're reflective by nature or something like that. And so they try to reconcile themselves to this. And when you don't believe in any transcendent reality be it Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, um, then you're sort of just, you know, you, you come to back to the fertilizer philosophy. I had a professor in graduate school that I didn't know it at the time, but then later learned that he had gotten cancer and they had one treatment, but then they had to remove one of his ears. And, and he was trying to decide whether he was going to do that. Now, he and his comment to a mutual friend of ours was, well, I don't want to look like a freak. I'm just dying. I'm going to become fertilizer anyway. So that was, that was, that was his hope. Yeah. Um, on an emotional level, besides being a rather dismal philosophy of life, at least to me, uh, then you have to ask a couple of central questions, uh, both of my former professor and of the man that you're speaking of. Uh, how do they know? that there's nothing beyond. Yeah. Have they simply 
tried to convince themselves that this is all that there is. Uh, there's no possible way that they could know that with any certainty, that there is any, not anything you, beyond us well, in you, this you, life. You kind of draw us into Pascal's wager a little bit here. I mean, even dealing with what Paul's dealing with in this passage here. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the issue of, uh, uh, as I think it was um, Peter Kreeft kind of said that in, given the weaknesses of Pascal's wager, the truth is that uh, an atheist doesn't have any chance of winning the prize. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe we should rem- remind our listeners that Pascal's wager is that famous uh, thing where Pascal himself was a Christian uh, said, well, if you if you wager that there is a, that there is no God, um, and uh, or he, what he was saying was it's better to wager that there is a God than that there's not, because if there is no if you believe that there is a God, but there really is no God, then you'll at least act in a way that is consistent with good morals, because you believe in God. And you've lost nothing if there is no God. You become fertilizer, to use the man's expression. Uh, on the other hand, if there is no, if you don't believe in God and there is a God, the consequences are going to be so momentous that you'll certainly wish there were that you had believed in Him. So Pascal said, on any way you look at it, it's a better thing to believe in God because even if there is no God, you're still going to act in a way that's. Uh, that's going to be good and charitable and so forth. And you had mentioned yeah. earlier that in the man you know, and maybe the man I'm talking about, that, uh, what did you put it, the, the, the divine spigot had somehow been closed yeah. up along the line. Or is it maybe another way of looking at it is that there's human plumbing. The trap is stuffed up somewhere so that the divine mm. grace of God can't get through, and so we need some good spiritual Drano to clean them out. Uh, yeah, so that they can yeah. realize the, the, what they're missing. Because let's face it on this, this issue of the resurrection. Now, Ken, for example, I've heard people tell me when they look around at the church and they see, you know, theologians going off the deep end on ideas, uh, right. people, nominal Christians who mm. are not living morally, uh, or living according to their faith, often Catholics say, well, the problem here is they don't believe in the reality of the Eucharist. They're not taking the Eucharist mm-hmm. seriously. And I might say that there's a truth there, but I often wonder that if behind the reason that they don't believe in the reality of the Eucharist is because, in fact, they really don't have a lot of confidence in the resurrection and the reality of what the resurrection is and what the resurrection does and what it means in the same way that Paul says here. If there is no resurrection, your faith is futile, your sins remain, and you're just going to be fertilizer. Well, I think you're absolutely right. This is an excellent point. Uh, What it is, and John Henry Newman uh, talked about this in the 19th century. Now, you've got to remember that 19th century England was a lot more Christian culture than we have today. But still, even there... Um, we are creatures that are bound by our senses, right? Our five senses. And particularly, as Aristotle said, we love our, the senses of our eyes more than anything, the vision that we have. But our vision is limited to the physical world. Well, it's easy for us to lose sight 
that there's a world beyond this world, a world that's even greater than we can possibly imagine. But it's so hard for us to believe in that because we are so in love with what we can see and touch and feel. And those higher realities tend to become... Um, tend to become uh, less real to us if we don't nurture our faith. I've often thought about this, Marcus, that that uh, faith is a gift, right? Yeah. Now, a gift must be nurtured. A gift like that. It's like it's like you get a uh, you get a, a pet, right? Like a pet dog or a pet cat or something. You have to feed the animal in order for him to him to live. And it's the same way with our faith. If we're not feeding our faith on a regular basis, it'll just die. Just like our bodies. If we don't feed our bodies, they will eventually shrivel up and atrophy. So what 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 Paul is bringing us back to this very central truth that. If your faith is not a supernatural faith, if it's not given by God and is nurtured by God, you're eventually going to lose it. I, I once read a, I wrote a story a long time ago called Theodore and the Orange, and uh, <laughs> it was about a very poor family that had almost nothing. And one Christmas, the little boy came downstairs and he, and he got the greatest gift he had ever received in his life, and it was a real live orange. And he, yeah. he was just overwhelmed with this little orange. And he was so taken aback by this orange, he didn't want to destroy it. So he put it away to save it so he could savor this orange. And, of course, oh. he, every day for it, he'd look at it, and then he'd put it back in his little secret spot. And a day later, he'd look at it, put it away in a secret spot. Pretty soon, all the rest of life came on. He began to forget about it in baseball games and all these things. And pretty soon, he forgot about it. And then the next Christmas came along, and he said, oh, shoot. What a, I forgot. What about that orange? And he went to his secret spot and he found the orange and it was all shriveled up and rotten. Yeah. You know, that's like our belief, just like you said. It's our belief in the resurrection, the belief in Jesus Christ. It's a belief in the seriousness of this. We start taking it for granted and all the other voices in our life will take away from the seriousness of what it means, this one central issue. He is alive. And the oh, difference boy, yeah. that makes in our life. And we can't just put it up on a shelf and forget about it because every other thing in our life will take precedence. And that's really, isn't that why Paul over and over and over in this entire chapter is trying to help them remember this is the reason we're here. If it wasn't for this, we wouldn't be here. Well, I, I like to connect to what you've just said so beautifully with uh, what he says in verse 18 when he says that that those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if there is no resurrection. But, and, you know, people often, our Protestant Christian friends will, will say things like, well, you know, how can the saints intercede for us? Because they, um, you know, they're dead. But here's the reality that we're not dead. After we, um, after our bodies cease to function in this life, and those great saints of heaven are alive and before the very presence of God. Now, if that ain't true, <laughs> if that ain't true, then you're right. We should absolutely abandon. And and Christianity is uh, a great deception, but we have to bank upon the fact that it is true that Christ is living. 
and that we and that the saints are living with him. And if that is true, then as Pascal said, you'd better you'd better wager on that being the case because the consequences are enormously negative if you don't. You know, as Paul Harvey said, uh, would often say the rest of the story. I, I want to tell you a little bit more about this man that I told you about who believes that that all of life is just about becoming fertilizer. Uh, in fact, he made a comment to me. He, he said, uh, you know, what is it? Why did this good earth of ours, what did it ever do wrong, this earth of ours, to be cursed with human life? You know, that's oh the way he looks at the world. But the rest of the story is he was brought up Catholic, brought up in a Catholic family. He even went, started going to seminary. But he admits oh in his book that all growing up, it, it, he never took it seriously, ever. It, it, it and oh, yeah, he never yeah. really listened. He was always distracted. He was always cynical. He always hid it. No one really knew that this wasn't important to him. And in fact, he even went away to seminary to please his parents. But at seminary, he just said, this is a bunch of junk. I don't believe this. I'm not going to fake it anymore. And so mm -hmm. now here he is, 80 years old, and this is, this is where he's at. And, uh, you know, we pray for, for people like that. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Um, but that gets back to me is how important it is for us parents to make sure our children don't just learn how to look like good Christians. They don't yes. they don't just yeah. know how to have the correct list of the things they need to do or say right. and then do those things that the, at the seed, the core of their mind and heart, they need to believe in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that that is so uh, so important, Marcus. Because um, one thing it becomes clear is that in every person's life, they have to make the transition from the faith I inherited to it becoming my faith. That is a faith that we embrace and that it is our own. And in a sense, um, you know, it's honest that the man came to the point where he didn't believe it anymore. But um, yeah. but that. That faith has to be real for ourselves. And I, I do remember that in watching my own children and watching them go through that transition, sometimes Catholic parents and other Christian parents are disturbed when their children are kind of in that no man's land in between when they're trying to figure that out. But what we have to understand is that that's a natural process that people are going to go through because they're either going to embrace it or not embrace it. What we have to do is to be there close with them. And in that sense, raising children is the, the same as we do in our work in the Coming Home Network. We can't force people into the Catholic Church, and we wouldn't want to. We have just to stand by them and with them to help them as they make those decisions um, uh, for life. Uh, and we have to be honest with them about what the Catholic faith is. Our dearly... Um, departed uh, friend and brother in Christ and father in the faith, Father Ray Ryland. I remember very well a number of years ago, he said uh, in a public forum, he said that we should never downplay the Catholic faith and what it teaches in trying to help people to come to uh, the fullness of faith. We shouldn't try to make it less than it is. And, and I've always remembered that because there's a lot of wisdom in that. If we try to make the Catholic the Christian or Catholic faith, um, if we talk, talk about it, but without the supernatural power of the resurrection, we're doing a disservice to people. And where you see the evidence that that's true is in the development of modern 
mainline Protestantism. The more that they jettisoned this part of that part of the virgin birth, uh, you know, the miracles of Christ, the resurrection, the more the church, these churches have declined because people say, well, it's not authentic. What's the purpose of being a Christian if you don't really believe these things? So we need to. And be that way. When people think that uh, you know our work in the Coming Home Network is about helping people discover the fullness of the Catholic faith, when they think of fullness, they're assuming well we're making sure they things they like things like the rosary and novenas and statues and icons, and in, in truth, the fullness of the Catholic Church begins with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Ken, there are a lot of our non-Catholic Christians, brothers and sisters, that presume that we Catholics do not believe in the resurrection since we have a body on the cross of our crucifixes. Oh, I see. No, I'm afraid they, uh, they, they're badly mistaken in that regard. The Church fully proclaims the, the reality of the resurrected Christ. In fact, we would say that that we we in the Eucharist receive not just the the dying body but the resurrected body of Jesus Christ because that body is being communicated metaphysically from heaven uh, to us. So we we believe in the fullness of the resurrection. What we're reminded of is that the purpose of that resurrection is always connected to the cross, and that's what we're reminding ourselves of in the crucifix is that that's where our Lord paid for our sins. That's where he experienced the pain of hell for us. But without the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. Two parts uh, more in this, Ken. I want to see if you can uh, flesh out a little bit, uh, especially from the Greek. In uh, every time in this paragraph when St. Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ, Every time it's in a passive sense that Christ has been raised. That's a passive word, passive verb, always implying and emphasizing the work of God the Father. Like verse 15, Mm -hmm. we testified of God that he raised Christ. Verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised. So we see that passive Act. Yeah. And I'm wondering if in that, besides the literal understanding of it, does it also carry a theological message to us about our own resurrection, our own salvation, our own movement to Christ as a gift of grace from him? Yeah, I think it implies two things here. One is that when we think of people as being dead, we, we think of them as not having any ability to do anything whatsoever. So it's using the language of the natural uh, world, in other words, Christ was in the tomb. His body was dead, uh, and he was, and so the Father raised him from the dead. The other theological point that you're kind of getting us to is that that in the accomplishment of redemption, every member of the Trinity of the Trinity, every Trinitarian person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all involved in some way. The Father planned salvation. The Son executed the plan of salvation. The Spirit applies the plan of salvation to individuals through the ministry of the Church. Um, But in the resurrection, the Father, who is the source of all life in the Trinity, brings His Son back to life, infusing His body with that divine life again that was part of, that He brought into the world in his divinity, but he does that through the ministry of the Spirit. Now, 
you make an excellent point here, I think, and that is that this was all gratuitous. It was not something that we deserve or that we earn. It's what Christ did in his resurrection was merit for us the grace of the resurrection. Now, you know, I remember as, as evangelical Protestants, we used to often say, you know, that the gift of uh, salvation, the gift of heaven is something we can neither earn nor deserve. And that is absolutely true. We can't deserve it, but it costs Christ everything. It cost him his life on this earth. And he merited for us the grace of the of forgiveness of sins, of resurrection, and of heaven. And it's his merit that he communicates to us in our souls, so to speak, in this life. And then at the end of history, he will give us the merits of the resurrection in the life to come. Yeah, there are a number of places in Romans, as well as I think First Peter, where it talks about our death, uh, our need to die through baptism. And then we're raised mm-hmm. again. Uh, both we look to the hope of the future resurrection, but we also recognize the present reality of the resurrection and how it has affected our new life. You know, Paul says in Romans 8, if Christ is in you, although your bodies are dead because of sin, your spirits are alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit which dwells in you. So we see the, the important theological parallels for ourselves. Well, exactly. And also in Romans, uh, you mentioned chapter 8. Well, in chapter 6, he says that if we were buried with Christ in baptism uh, into his death, so this was done so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, it means the Father's glory being communicated to his body, so we would walk in newness of life. In other words, the new life in Christ that we're walking in now in our daily walk with Christ is not just a a life in the normal sense. It is a heavenly life. It's because the Spirit of God dwells in us and brings us the life of Christ that we can even live a Christian life at all. The the big uh, challenge, so to speak, or surprise, is not why are there so many baptized Christians not living Christian lives, but how does anybody live a Christian life? It's impossible (laughs) to do so without the grace of God being communicated to us constantly every day in our lives. The last verse in this section, I want to make sure we get to this, a very last phrase. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This idea of the first fruits, it reminded me of that parallel text in Hebrews 12. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Yeah, there you have the, in that passage you just read, I mean, you have the entire, in a sense, the whole Paschal mystery of Christ. He died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and there is the life that we live every day. In a very real sense, the Christian life being lived is a life of daily death, a daily resurrection, 
a daily ascension into heaven, as Paul says in Colossians 3, that we should put our minds on heaven the way that where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And when we fall asleep, to use Paul's language here in 1 Corinthians, when we fall asleep in this life, we're still being, we're still with God in heaven there in our spirits until the final resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. He's the leader who shows us the way to that final resurrection. Yeah, whenever we think of the resurrection, uh, I think we immediately uh, jump ahead to the future someday after the time that you and I are both fertilizer uh, (laughs) and we look to a day when the dead will be raised. But there are more than enough verses that emphasize the, the already not yet idea of the experience of the resurrection now. You know, Ephesians talks about we are already raised uh, with Christ into the heavenly places. But yeah. it makes me think about the Eucharist where Jesus talks about that he, when we eat his body, drink his life, we have life now. We have eternal life. So this resurrection is not just a future, but it's always a present reality for those who are in Christ. Well, there's a beautiful passage in Irenaeus that was recently in the Daily Office in which he says that receiving the Eucharist prepares us for the bodily resurrection at the end of history. And what I think he's referring to there is the fact that that because Christ communicates his human nature to us in the Eucharist, it's preparing our human nature to experience the nature of divinity of God because our, ultimately our, our salvation is being divinized, being deified, being made like God in living with God in heaven, loving God with the same love that he has for us. What can a person do right now to better appreciate the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, it means simply one of the things that I've come to love personally is uh, is saying the Regina Chaley every day. You know, the, the famous prayer, you know, rejoice, queen of heaven, you know, for the son whom you did merit to bear has risen as he said. And pray for us to God, you know, O holy Virgin Mary. And then it, it ends with this beautiful prayer. O God, who gave joy to the world through the resurrection of your son, grant that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary, his mother, we may obtain the joys of everlasting life. That should be the prayer of every Catholic Christian every day, that every day I get closer to obtaining the joys of everlasting life. All right. Thank you, Ken. And uh, thank you for joining us today. I just want to remind you, we'll, we'll pick up again in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 next week. And uh, if you have any questions or comments, send us an email, and we'd love to include your ideas. You can do so at dis at chnetwork.org. I hope that this program has encouraged you. We'd love to hear from you. So go to our Facebook page or or send us a Twitter. And uh, may we together, as we pray for each other and seek to follow Christ, seek to live out our new life in Christ, let us pray for each other and encourage each other as we go on the journey to Catholic Company.